Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Mensa Brothers are going to join me today. Yep. So we'll see what's going on in their lives. And then no show tomorrow. So that's what's going on. Yeah, let me, uh, because they're on today. Let me uh, let me start the show. We'll do real quick news headlines. And then, uh, as I said, uh, we'll see what's going on. So good morning to you uh, on this Thursday morning. Welcome to All Marine Radio, another Thursday here. And the United States Marine Corps Band makes it official.
And this dedicated to somebody who I spoke with yesterday, struggling with uh, alcohol and the kind of devastating impact um, that alcohol has on your life. And um, I don't know. I thought about the discussion a lot uh, after I got off the phone and then uh, and then last night. Um, and just a number of people I know that have, that have struggled with that demon and, uh, and how difficult it is, how available it is, how much a part of it, you know, it becomes our social life. And, uh, and then when you try to walk away from it, it's also been a, uh, it's also been a part of the way we've coped with, uh, the traumatic events of our lives. So this is dedicated to somebody who I won't even name. Um, yeah, hang in there, keep fighting, keep making progress, right? And um, and progress is, seems to be in these fights extremely slow. And, uh, yeah, but it, I, I can tell you this, if, if so many people I know have done it, um, if you listen to them, if you do, because at the end of the day, you got to do it, and there's no easy path through it. Um, if you do it, Good things happen. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult 
challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Alright. We will uh check the weather, check a couple news headlines and then <laughs> I man, I'll tell you what, it's laughable. Um I was reading this morning and the governor of the state of California denies that far left um far left approaches to law enforcement are not fueling the rising crime that we're seeing across the nation. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's laughable. Yeah. What is it? Is it something in the water? Something in the air? Is it global warming fueling it? What is it? What, what, hmm, what's changed here in the last, you know, wow. Anyway, um, check the weather. Currently in Quantico, it is overcast, hazy, and 78. Down the coast of Camp Lejeune, it is sunny in 84. 29 Palms has cooled off a little bit. Partly sunny in 89. Camp Pendleton, partly sunny, 71. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy, 73. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 80. In Manila, it is dark, raining, and 78. And in Darwin, where it's cooled off, it's cold, it's winter. Clear, dark, and 67. It's partly sunny and 71 here in Southern California and Costa Mesa. going to be 78 today, 78 tomorrow, 76 on Saturday. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the 80s. I have to tell you that right now. Um, a quick look at news headlines here before the Mensa Brothers join me. Here on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. I've got a couple. i got an email question for them. Um, that's actually pretty interesting. Um, interesting press conference. If you get a chance, watch it. Um, and, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, top, top headline in Stars and Stripes is... New general takes command of Fort Hood's 1st Cavalry Division after the investigation clears its former commander. Yeah, Fort Hood, much in the news um, for a whole variety of bad things happening down there. The... um. Army, the Air Force, the Navy defend plans to retire planes and ships. So this whole concept of divest to invest, which Representative Luria, one of my new favorites, uh, doesn't really buy because we never see the payoff, according to her. Um, Yeah, up on Capitol Hill, the budget's coming, blah, 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 blah. Um. Let's see, Wall Street Journal, nothing I would tell you uh, that you should trouble yourself with. Uh, Top headlines in the Marine Corps Times.
nothing I would tell you. No, one of the things that came out of the uh, press conference yesterday is the increased um, attempt by the United States to get people that work for the United States out of Afghanistan, um, bringing them not only here to the United States, but other bases around the country, around the world. Um, so, um, so that was one of the things that came out of the, the press conference yesterday. Top five stories in early bird real quick before the Mensa brothers come on. Number one. The Taliban appear to have strategic momentum, according to General Milley. You know, that's really, that's the headline. But that's if you watch the press conference, that's not his what his major point was when he spoke. He said the Afghan army has, um, and, and this is this was the question, um, and one of the questions I'll ask the Mensa brothers. Um, the Afghan army has the training and the equipment to not only fight the Taliban, but to defeat them, according to General Milley. The question is, do they have the will to do that? Do they have the will to do that? Number two, plan to boost Biden's defense budget could see bipartisan support. So again, um, the Navy has been, (laughs) has said, and the CNO, to me, he's a head scratcher to me. They need three to five percent real growth. They don't get it. He doesn't say anything. So, evidently, there's a some bipartisan. That means at least a Democrat and a Republican want to increase the defense budget. I don't see people screaming for that. Uh, next, Sekdef Austin headed to Southeast Asia as tensions flare in the South China Sea. Um, so, General or General Austin, former General Austin, current Sekdef headed that way. Uh, number four, Pentagon's top general defense military as an apolitical after reporter comment after reported comments about Trump. Yeah, General Milley uh, was dancing during the press conference, and and the Sektef hopped in to help him out. He kept saying, "I'm not going to comment on what's in anybody's books," and the books all quote him, you know, and things he said. Uh, number five, four thousand Afghans who helped the military um, are going to complete visas to come to the United States. So the number's bigger than that. So anyway. Um, all right. Let me fire up the Mensa Brothers extravaganza, and uh, we'll get them on here. And... Yeah. Tim Lynch joins me. How are you, Timmy? I'm off and doing fine. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Jeff Kenny singing in his car. Will Will looks younger. <laughs> like did, did you get a facelift in New York? Is that why you went to New York to get a facelift? Why do you look younger? Do you guys agree, do, do you do you guys agree with me? Does Will look younger? I got my glasses on. I can't see. Yeah. I can't see. Oh, I just he, he looks like he might have won last night. To me, everybody. <laughs> to I me, was everybody driving looks all. Younger. I was driving all day yesterday. You know what the difference is? Instead of having that dark paneling behind me, I have a white wall with a light. You look. You look almost angelic. 
It, well, it's all in the presentation. As a, as a professional media man, you should know these things. But I do. I still I, have a lot to learn. I do know these things. So, <laughs> angelic. I don't. Not a term I, that leaps to the front of my mind when I think. Well, you, I didn't say it. You did. It did leap to the front of your mind. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to describe it to Jeff because he can't see shit. He could only because he's blind ah. and he's old. <laughs> and I'm exaggerating. I can see. Oh, that's that's what they always say. That's what your grandpa says. I can't see anything, and he's watching the whole time. He's collecting on your ass <laughs> before he beats you. Um, all right, first of all, Tim, uh, give us a weather report in McAllen, Texas. How's, uh, how's the weather? It continues to be a wet summer. It's uh, right now about 92, awfully humid. We've had showers almost daily for the last week. Very unusual. And very humid, I would imagine. Oh, very, very humid kind of kind of shorten the life of my stinking sunflowers this year but boy do they get big really so how is it is it going to be a, a bumper sunflower crop i take it no no i had to get rid of them early because they, they go they go bad early when they get so wet but i've got some of them that got up to 14 feet and at night the squirrels will come down and and jump on top of them and wear them out it's kind of cool to see i've got some pictures of it too but yeah, they, they they normally would last until August, but they'll be gone by the end of the month. I've already taken most of them out. Had to take most of them out. And then, how do you get the sunflower seeds out of them? I don't. They fall right out. I, I don't. I don't mess with them myself. I just put them in the in the in our big. You know, the city comes by and collects vegetation. This being a tropical area, and man, is it green! Normally, it's brown and hot. The sun. Sun normally just beats the hell out of this place, but this year, lots of cloud cover. Everything is green, tropical. It would be I nice if it weren't growing, for the mosquitoes. I think you're growing poppies out there, Tim. Come clean, man. No, no, no. Those go in the wintertime. You got to plant, plant those in the winter. I always had poppies in my garden in Afghanistan. Sometimes you got to make up a little tea. Who didn't? Who didn't? Yeah, yeah. If you get sick, you got to make up a little tea and whatnot. I, I know how to do that. It's not that hard. I can see you there eating your pomegranates and spitting out the seeds and tending to your dope plants. <laughs> yeah, like, like Vito Corleone, like Vito Corleone, just before he died. When, yeah. when I was at the, when I was first a customer at the Kabul Bank, God, right across the God street, rest, was God a, rest, was his, God rest his fictitious soul. <laughs> right, right across the street from the Kabul Bank was a dope plant. That thing must have been twelve feet tall. It was huge and had all kinds of flowers on it. But I think eventually the uh, DEA just got pissed and cut it down. But um, yeah, that stuff just grows everywhere there in Afghanistan. You guys got no sense of humor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Jeffrey, uh, give us a weather update. From uh, It looks like you're in Southern California. I am. Yeah, this will be the last time I do this phone thing. I'll always have the, the iPad for these. But um, it's uh, overcast today. You know, it's uh, been hot last few days. I mean, uh, for, for around here, you know. High 70s, low 80s. It's like humid, though. More humid than it usually is, you know, so. Yeah. I was sweating. Got it. William, where are you? I am in an undisclosed location within the confines of the Empire State. The Empire State, for those of you who don't travel much, is uh, the land of the formerly, was that yellow license plate with what, blue, dark? It was like orange. Orange? Oh, that would wait. We've gone through all kinds of iterations. So. Yeah, the Empire State. Named after the Empire State Building. Yes? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> why 
Why is, is it called? Because it's the other way around. Is that how they teach geography in California? <laughs> I think it was the other way around. I th- yeah. Empire so why State do they call it the Empire State? You got to call it something. <laughs> Empire used to not be a dirty word. Now it's a dirty word. Obviously. Is it? Origin They'll have to change it pretty soon. Of the term Empire State. So the building got named after it's the Empire State. Yeah. Therefore, it becomes the Empire State Building. Well, I'm surprised you don't know this. Well, the Empire State um, became famous, the Empire State Building, because of the first one of the first silent or talky movies, King Kong, where he climbs up on top of the thing. At that time, it was the tallest building in New York, but it's named after the Empire State. And I think the reason it's the Empire State is something to do with um, England. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> that is the mother of all swag right there new york new york is called the empire state because of its wealth and variety of resources this nickname appeared on new york license plates from 1951 through the mid-60s there you have it will consider yourself counseled all right, for not for, what? for not for ignorance relative to your own state history and motto. Oh, I absolutely understand my own state history and motto. I don't, it, I don't I, think you do. I mean, when when you spin when you spit out that the Empire State is named after the Empire State Building, <laughs> I cannot okay. respond with a thought. That's like saying that's like saying to that. That's like saying Mac is named after the Big Mac hamburger. <laughs> hey, why not? I know you predate that. <laughs> why not? You're, like, you're almost as old as me, so I, was, you, you I mean remember it, the Big Mac. You mean it? Was, you mean it wasn't that way? That's but you, I but mean, I mean, you didn't stand. You didn't stand ready to correct, and you're a native son, so you should be. I as, actually, I'm not a native son. I was born in Ohio. Oh, there you go. The Pontius, the, the Pontius Pilot routine. The um, Nice. Speaking of speaking of Pontius Pilot, um, somebody sent me an email question. Hey, I have a question for the Mensa brothers. If you could be involved in any one fight in history, what would it be? So, if you could be there at this fight, what would it be, Jeffrey? You always have to go first in these questions. Does that mean like a participant in it? Well, or, if, you, uh, if you would be a participant, or maybe you could be flying your drone around and, you know, checking things out. Um, so, yeah, that you would participate in it as either as a fighter or as a drone operator. I like this little bighorn. No shit. As a drone guy, see, yeah, to see, you know, how it really went down. Yeah, he had a bad day. Yeah, I He had a bad day. There's a lot, then there's like, Isan Luana, the the massacre of the Brits in uh, in South Africa in 1879. I like to, you know, the, the disaster. So you can see what really, you know, what really happened. Really happened. All right. So, but if you had to pick one, it would be Little Bighorn. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised. I don't know why, but I am. Uh, Tim, one. I have to go with chosen because you you want to throw in the extreme weather along with the extreme number of enemies that that you. That's fight. why I asked. Do we got to be there? Because being in the Chosen Reservoir, as being in the Little Big them would suck, man. So, so seeing it is one thing. I mean, being there to see it, but 
having like your boots on and shit. You know no, I mean? you like, would be insulated from uh, all like weather conditions. You would be like the okay, yeah. you'd be like a boy in the bubble, but the bubble would be um, invisible, so none of the other Marines could tease you and shit yeah. on you for, yeah, for yeah, being but, in a bubble. But it, it turns in you've got battle, legitimate battle, and you've got weather that was deadly in and of itself. You're you're fighting two different things, and you won. So I'd much rather be one of the guys walking out of Chosen than left on the plains of uh, of Montana. Than being the, the drone operator on the on the banks of the Little Bighorn. <laughs> so that's yeah. what's important about if you're if you're actually a party to it. It's like I'd say Iwo Jima. Here I am. Look up at Sir Buck. No, 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 no. Okay, so let me let me expand on this. You're not subject to the weather conditions, right. and you're I not gonna, and you're not going to die. You're invincible. So I can see Will's going through his whole Rolodex of battles here. Which yeah. one he wants to talk about. I know. Now that Atkins is in his head and Toll mm-hmm. and Hornfisher, that's a big Rolodex, okay? In spite, yeah. see, in see, spite of him you, not coming from the Empire State. You, you don't want to do Iwo or you don't want to do uh, Okinawa because that was just too damn drawn out. I, I, I like my heroic battles cold and over rather, t- rather quickly. The chosen, the chosen wasn't I mean, over both quicker than chosen. Yeah, I guess you're right. Man, yeah, so shit. your own. But again, years. my in doing this, I I didn't think that we would do a comparative analysis whether your choice is better than Jeff's choice. It was just like, what <laughs> is your choice? But you kind of then selected yours and then shit on Jeff's in a comparative analysis. <laughs> Which I think is was not what Little I was really sucked. <laughs> exactly. Hey, at, at least with Jeff's, you didn't have to move far to get the whole battle underneath your visual. You know, you could see it play out in a relatively short space. There's that. That's an advantage. But then Gettysburg would be better for that, quite frankly. All right. So for you, it's the chosen reservoir. Yes, sir. All right, William. Yeah, I mean it's hard because you. I'm I'm trying to think of one where where there's great unknowns that would be interesting you know so i think jeff really went down the right path there um you know wouldn't you like to be standing next to henry v to hear him say the speech but i don't yeah. think he actually said the speech yeah he but, wasn't that type of guy that he no. said something and that was no. what was unusual because he wasn't the type of guy to even speak to his men yeah but he but did but if he, he said, would have said the speech at that yeah. time you were there <laughs> Wouldn't that be one of the? I guess they're so inspired things? because he treated them like shit, like Timmy said most of the time. He said, "Hey guys, this don't look good for us. <laughs> Let's win one for the team. Win one for the Gipper." <laughs> yeah, but then you're standing all morning when you're all jocked up in that chainmail and you can't take a crap or a piss or anything. So that'd be nasty. You're gonna smell bad by the time the French finally get around attacking you. Yeah, that'd be well, unpleasant. Yeah, but anyway. you're impervious to this if you go back in time. Oh, okay. In, in this situation, like none of that applies. You don't have to take a so, shit. So, so Will says Agincourt. Agincourt is what he wants. To say. How do you say that? Yeah. Well, it's a French word. Or Agincourt. Agincourt. Yeah. I just slur yeah. it all together, and they say that. Then they'll nod their head. So William, I mean, are you just gonna? As I, I mean, I say it. It, you know. Unfortunately, Henry V didn't give the speech, but if he did, that'd be a great place to be standing. That's it? You want to hear the speech? Uh, I mean, you know, I. what are, what are other, you know, I, you know what, you know what would be interesting to me? To be one of those guys that jumped on D-Day. Yeah. 
and and B and C some of the stories that just never have ever made it into a book, you know, and there's thousands of them. Uh, but talk about going into the great unknown, right? Yeah. Couple three years of training and uh, into the night you go. Nowhere close to where you're supposed to be, not near anyone you're supposed to be with, no real uh, objective that you can accomplish. Um, to see how some of those stories played out would really be something. And that's a good point. You know, that's not, you know, Mac, the Bravo, one, Bravo 126 at Quezon, when they got their, they, they did the attack after they lost Jockas, you know, Jockas's platoon. A couple months later, a couple, like six weeks later, they finally got a chance to do the attack and they had, you know, all kind of arty support and they walked right up that hill and kicked the shit and they killed about over 100 uh, NBA. I would like to see that just to see the emotion of uh, those guys doing that, you know. Did you have you watched that documentary Bravo Common Men on Common Valor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they talk about they call that the payback attack because yeah. they sat there for over a month. Those guys, that platoon that went out, the reinforced platoon, you know, I want to say 55 guys went out, like 45 did not come back. And they yeah. and they're, and they're, you know Marines never leave Marines behind. Their bodies stayed out there, yeah. and that shit ate them alive. And then they went out, and the way they described the attack, the the fog was sitting on the mountain when they when they LD, and they essentially walk through the fog, and then they walk out of the fog, and MVA have no idea that they're coming and that they're there and they're close, and they say that you know they describe one guy was out of out of a trench, you know taking a shit. You know, and then somebody killed him, and then the artillery ripped, and they they had flamethrowers, and they yeah. and they start clear and they start clearing trenches. And there is one scene where this dude is talking about. <clears throat> he said, "Look, I you know I got there, but I never really used my rifle yet, and I was kind of a pacifist, and I didn't know if I could do this. And so I see the guy next to me, and boom, he gets shot in the head. And you, I mean, it's like." He's describing it in slow motion, high definition. He said, and then I, I'm down in this hole, and me and this NBA guy are playing, like, pop goes the weasel. You know, my right. head goes up, his head yeah. goes up. So then I just decided I would get out of sequence. I'd put my head down and pop it right back up. And then his head came up. And I, and then he says, and I could hear my primary marksmanship instructor on the range at Pendleton. Breathe and squeeze. <laughs> and I shot him in the head, and then he and then he did it again. And but he's describing this scene like he's an alien that's landed here. And then this other guy comes and he jumps in the hole and he says, "Come on, we got to get these guys." And he jumps up to leave. He gets shot and he gets killed. And he said, and his brain's late. And he, I mean the description, yeah. But the the way they describe, um how devastating it was to know that their friends were out there, right? How, and they were they laid out there. And then they went out there, and they had to recover their bodies a month later. And, uh, is, yeah, I'll tell you what. If you haven't seen the documentaries called Bravo, Common Men, Uncommon Valor, if you're a member of Amazon Prime, you could watch it for free. And it is about Bravo Company 126 at Quezon. But that scene is towards the end. And then, I'll tell you what, watch it all the way to the end where these guys talk about what it was like to come home land at El Toro and be called a baby killer, be, be get spit on, all the shit that they went through as Vietnam veterans when they came home. And yeah. and you hear one guy say, 
you know, and tears in his eyes, right? He said, look, I just wanted my country to love me as much as I loved it, right? And these are these are sons, nephews, grandsons of guys who fought in World War One and World War Two, who went off to do their patriotic duty as sons who grew up in families who had veterans in them. And they came home and got treated like shit. And uh, it's an awesome, awesome documentary. One of the best ones I've but ever that, seen. And Ken Pipes was the CEO of Bravo, yep. right? Yeah, and Ken's, uh, Ken's in it. And you hear, yeah. he made right. recordings on a, re- one of those, remember those small reel-to-reel things they used to have when we were kids? You'd, yeah. you'd, you'd get them yeah, for my like. Dad had, my dad would do that yeah, in Vietnam too. Yeah, you'd get them for like Christmas and they'd be broken by New Year's. I mean, because you had to rewind the tape and all that shit. Um, well, he, they have recordings of him um, and you can hear the, the burden in his voice right after that platoon is ambushed. Because he, you know, he tasks them and evidently they walk into some kind of V position of two NVA 500 man battalions. They walk into it. The NVA bait them. They send two dudes out there. They say, hey, we got two dudes. You know, we're going to go yoke them up. And they they move into this essentially V shaped ambush and they get annihilated. Um, Yeah. They had. That's the first time I ever, and I was an enlisted guy. I read this book called End of the Line by a guy named Richard Robert Pizor. And he's talking about that fight. And he's saying, that's the first time I ever heard of it. He's, and he's saying, they, they, besides the, uh, the way you described them coming up the hill, when they fired the arty, they, first time I heard of groups in series. And uh, they're like fire, fire apples. And as they go further, fire oranges, fire grapes. It's just tearing, it's just total suppression. And by the time that was lifted and they're rolling this thing forward, they're in there with the uh, shocked NVA. And uh, also the uh, Antos. They use Antos in that thing where they, you can, rolling up behind them, these six-barreled fucking 106s blowing away whole tree lines and shit like that. So uh, it was very good support, you know. And uh, yeah. The, the and Antos. The and I met a guy who was an Antos gunner. He was, uh, he was mass sergeant in our three shop when I was at 1st LAR Battalion as a lieutenant. In 1985, 86. And, and he tells me one day that he was an Antos gunner in Vietnam. So, I mean, like, how many people you know that were Antos gunners? Yeah. And I said, so how did you fire that thing, man? We, I mean, so, could, I mean, what was it like when you fired, like, all six of those things? And he looks at me and goes, nobody did that unless you were being <laughs> over, overrun. And he said the, the overpressure would. He said, I did it once. Yeah. I, I did it once, and it, it knocked me out. You know, the next thing I knew, they were shaking me and waking me up. And I was like, what happened? The last thing I remember was volley firing this thing, 6106s, right, yeah. on, on by your left and right ears, right? Yeah, <laughs> as, as the- yeah when I was in 3.5, we switched from uh, the 106 to, you know, Dragons, and um, – but I remember that was 106. Holy shit. Yeah, that's what the mule would do. You know, the mule was like that vehicle we used to have, like a barn door with wheels on it. It was mainly for the for the 106. And um, they had a beehive round for that thing, where it's like a bunch of darts, you know, devastating. If you, he, you know. T- he, talked about, he talked about using um, the, 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 the flechette, flechette round, the beehive yeah. round, yeah. in the jungle. He said we would clear lanes of visibility. We'd be on a trail, and we'd be getting shot at, and we'd just shoot 
we'd shoot in the general direction, and it would be like somebody dropped the curtain. These flechette rounds flying through the jungle would clear a lane to see through, and we'd like, oh, there, there they are. And he talked about, you know, the field expedient uses of the Antos, which is the 106. Crazy. I would, I, I tell you, I would, I would, as Timmy may ridicule this, but I don't really care. But I would, I would want to be at Iwo Jima. I mean, the battle I've read, and I would love to be like darting around the battlefield, right, to watch different things, right, to watch different things that I've heard and read about. You know, uh, Tony Stein with his stinger running back and yeah. forth, right? Very yeah, rigged, fucking uh, fifty cal machine. Thirty cal, cal yeah. 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 He's a tooling guy, guy from Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, and so to see that, to see the fighting in the northern part of the island, to see the fighting around the meat grinder, the amphitheater, you know, to to I don't know. I mean, it. I've always just been fascinated by Iwo Jima, and you know, to like if uh, do you remember that show, The Time Tunnel, when we were kids, it, these guys would go back in time. But they had to be really careful because if you fucked with time, you fucked with subsequent events. So they'd have these kind of nuanced missions relative to uh, the time tunnel, to going back in time. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, if you stop Pearl Harbor, you, you know, you stop yeah. all the events subsequent to Pearl Harbor. And right. so it was – It was. I love that show. I love that show. So I, I've got a question, if I may, for you three. And it kind of stems from uh, – we were talking about our time in Quantico – and uh, I mentioned last week that uh, book offered a king's shilling, forgetting to mention the reason why the defense of the British soldier from the time was because they were considered to be tavern scum and criminals. That's what their officers said about them. But we know that chronic drunks and criminals make shit infantry, and that wasn't what they comprised of Brit infantry. But uh, what we used to argue about, and I remember it was rather, rather serious, and you guys have the answer now. Two things. Carrying linked machine gun ammo over your shoulder on outside the box, number one. Number two, the traditional shitbird marine who, who who turns out to be outstanding in the field. Is that true or false? I don't have the answers to this. The link the linked well, ammo. And I was thinking about this because we argued extensively about this shit. Because well, we were stupid, you know, we we're just nitnoid guys. Yeah, when I was in Liberia, we 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 had no way of getting early warning. Both times I was there, especially the first time, because we had no way of getting you know, early warning of an, an attack. And so uh, the guys that we relieved from 2-4 had 550 cord in the positions, which they named after the positions at the MVM Foo, you know, <laughs> Gabrielle and shit. And they, uh, and they hung it over there, and they got dirty fast from the dust in the air. And so it was an issue. And, uh, and because of that, I... We always just had our – when I got there as a company commander, we actually had a, a firefight. Our ammo was in cans because of the um, – you know, that in West Africa, you, you get periods where um, you get shit dirt flying through the air. You ever yeah. been to Senegal or any place like down there in West Africa? It uh, The helmet. You know, yeah. It, and so that's why I didn't want to put the, uh, you know, the, the ammo like that. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Unless we shoot it within a couple minutes. Now, when they're humping in Vietnam and shit, they you know you see these guys were doing it, so they must have you know, you know, it must have not been that much of an issue for them. Yeah, I, well, I, I remember it, the bitter arguments about that. Well, and, you know, and 
Yeah, but remember, what was Mac? What was the last book? Um, the guy wrote the book about Vietnam. He he had been an officer, but he wrote the book from the perspective of a corporal machine gunner. And then he, the the end of the book is his time in, you know, sort of PTSD and recovering. Uh, a quiet cadence. That book. A quiet cadence. Yeah, yeah written by so, his, his his first name is his last name is Trainer. Yeah. But in that book, if you remember, they carried all their ammunition in cans. And I would tell you, and if you're riding around in an LAV, there's no reason yeah. to not have it in a can. And nice. if you're riding around in the desert in an LAV, you're covered with a quarter inch of dirt within one yeah. two minutes. So, you know, those I, fucking I, machine gunners are always cleaning their every time they stop. They're cleaning that gun and they're clean for exactly the reason Will said, you know, it's just uh you know, I, I remember being, for whatever reason, when I went to IOC, I w- would either wind up being on a machine gun team or I would get voluntold to be in one. And I did it a fair amount. And that ammunition, even in boxes, when you're crawling and moving, it the boxes get destroyed. And now you're loose with loose link. And you're constantly having to clean it. And so... I have a theory, you know, the towels we, we've seen constantly worn by Vietnam veterans. If you think if, that's what's, around their everybody's necks. carrying, you're right. Everybody in Vietnam, those guys are all carrying machine gun ammo virtually. Every guy's carrying a 60 or sometimes two 60 rounds from the mortar because uh, that the firefight happens and, you know, the bad weather and the relief of Vietnam, too, for those guys up north. You call even if you have Artie on call or mortars on call. If you're off a little bit, the round is lost, and a lot of times it's like so. It's like you're always shooting at third base. And for those people listening, for us guys who were instructors at the basic school, the main uh, indirect fire range where we taught lieutenants how to call for fire was R seven, and it was like a baseball diamond on the right hand side. As you looked out there, you had first base, which is relatively flat. At the tree line, the, the limit of sight, basically, you had second base. But over on the left, it was like on a, a ridge, a sharp ridge, was third base. And if you shot at third base, even if you were close, if you were over a little bit, you would never know because the round would be lost because of the, uh, the steepness of the terrain. So when I was up there in RC East in Afghanistan, it was like that. Um, that's why I admire the Army's way they do Artie. They, they had positioned batteries and like half batteries around Kunar province so that that wasn't as much of an issue. But I'll tell you what, every fucking every every ridge was like was like third base, you know, going up through Kunar and stuff. So, you know, that was uh, that's an issue, you know, and, and uh, so it's like that stuff. I agree with you about the towel. Now that I'm thinking about it, because here, here, here's, here's what I ammo all the time, because everybody. That machine gun, they called the M60 in Vietnam the pig. Right. And the reason was because it just fucking ate ammo. Because every time you got fired up, that was the one thing that would uh, dominate the, the, the small battlefield. Right. The, and so and so as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Maybe, because I remember that discussion, you know, that we had. I mean, you'd argue, yeah. you know, that, yeah, ideally it should stay in cans. But what happens if you need your hands to shoot a rifle in a no-shit firefight where somebody's going to get dead? Okay, I need my hands free, so where does this thing go? Well, it could go in my Alice pack if I have room, my my can of 
you know, uh, what, 100 rounds of ammunition? And, uh, or, you know, if I'm the A gunner, it's clipped, it's bandoliered around my, you know, around my neck. And then every time I stop, I grab that towel and I clean that ammunition off. It's shiny as shit, right? And, and because it's not, we all know, it's not going to function. If if it's full of dirt and feeds that into right. the weapon, and so uh, to me, if you're if you were a professional a gunner, right? If you were a professional machine gunner, that was your ready ammunition, and it was your responsibility to, to clean it so that you know you could get that. Because again, one of the reasons it was the dominant weapon was, was because look, when you served notice, and those things lit off, you were telling them. Hey, and that—that's why, to me, it was. It, there's an importance about shoot around, shoot indirect fire. It doesn't matter if you miss. That's a fucking calling card, man. And if somebody says it's too close, then shoot it. Shoot whatever you can, because it impacts their decision making. Hey, we're adjusting artillery onto your ass, but get it out there and get that thing into their brain, into their decision making cycle. And the machine gun was when you heard that. You were like, "Oh shit, they got that." And on the other end, on the other end, when you, when a seven six two round is, goes ten feet over your head, it feels like it's ten millimeters over your head. And uh, it'll, you know, I don't give a fuck who you are. You're gonna, uh, it's gonna fuck up your sight line and sight picture. Oh man, let me tell you, the first time I shot the M1, and I saw the the dirt it threw up as opposed to a five five six round, right? And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh shit." <laughs> Right, that's like that's serious, and so yeah, so yeah, interesting, interesting. The um, you know, the other part of that question, right? Um, bad people, good marines. Yeah, I, I say I say yes to that, but here's what I I would say: undisciplined marines all of a sudden magically become disciplined marines. No, no. so. You know, we all grow up different, and and the Marine Corps Marine Corps history is rich with kids who came from troubled paths, who came into the Marine Corps, and became great Marines. Yeah, and, you know, um, but undisciplined, Colonel, undisciplined. Colonel, once you join the Marine Corps, it, it, if you're undisciplined, all of a sudden, you know, the shooting starts, and you become this disciplined part of this team. In my opinion, that doesn't happen. Yeah, the CEO of the base school, and I went through is Colonel Ebert. And he got the Navy Cross in, uh, in Vietnam. And uh, he told this great story about this guy named Bolio. We had Bolio's nephew in 3-8. He was in weapons company. Remember that guy, Will? I, I do not, unfortunately. You didn't chase him in Turkey or, you know, you didn't do anything? No, that no, no I didn't worry about weapons company. I no, we I just, I was on duty one time and I met the kid. He was a corporal. But Bolio was like uh, the first thing Ebert had to do checking in the, um, I guess it was two five here at Pendleton. He had to go get Bolio out of jail, and then um, he said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna have you confined." This is 1965. I'm not gonna have you confined, but you got to promise to stay wherever Fifth Marines was then, right? Could have been Margarita, who knows, you know? But uh, so the kid goes, "Yes, sir," and he goes, promptly goes and gets drunk and thrown in jail again. Again, they go to Vietnam. The guy's a hell of a machine gunner, though, and he got the Navy Cross, and. And Ebert wrote him up for it, and that's how he got it. He said, I should have got wrote him up for the Medal of Honor. So if you look at the, the book, that's what made me buy that book when I was in the basic school, the Navy Cross from the the uh, you know the little bookstore we had there. And Bolio's in there, you know. It's, uh, so I think it's a, you know, everybody's different individual. 
and I think there's people who, you know, uh, who do that. They're like, uh, they wise off a little bit. They're, they, you know, they don't like cleaning the fucking heads. They do a shit job. They don't, uh, they don't, they feel like their time's being wasted. And then, but when you're doing something, um, what they consider to be meaningful, i.e. trying not to get killed, they shine. <laughs> I don't think that's something you can say. All shitbirds will shine. No, most shitbirds will stay shitbirds, you know, when it's rough or when it's easy. But there is people who I think, you know, that that happens with. Yeah, I would no. say, you know, a different example than than time in Iraq was... Uh, was uh, when we went to Africa and uh, evacuated the embassy in Sierra Leone. Only it was one ship operation, and only the first day, only about 100 people went ashore. What was interesting is that everyone who was on the ship, uh, all the Marines on the ship, went like all hands on deck. Yeah. Uh, I, I got back to the ship later, and we had you know, several hundred people down on the hangar deck. And it was really interesting how the entire BLT turned out to do whatever needed to be done. So the real world mission, which was very short lived, brought out the best in a lot of people. Yeah. I would say that just trying to think, uh, you know, I had, I had one Marine, uh, uh, a guy named Washalana, who, um, I mean, it's really, it's a horrible, horrible story. Um, but right when I took command, he was UA. Uh, he, had, he had left Iraq after the march up. Uh, his, I believe, step-brother passed away. So he went on emergency leave uh, to go home to her funeral. And uh, when he came, he, he was UA coming back. And so we gave him your analysis and he popped positive. And uh, so we're kicking him out of the Marine Corps and, and he asked General Mattis to, to keep him in. You know, and the story comes out, basically, this guy, his mother was a drug addict, his father was a bum. The local judge is giving him, giving custody to his grandmother. His grandmother got elderly, put him in foster care. And then the only people who gave a shit about him when he was a kid were his foster parents. One passed away just before they deployed. The other one passed away right after the war was over. And he went home to an absolute hellhole in Oklahoma, got involved with his old buddy's pop positive. And uh, so after office hours, and this is a tough little, I mean, five, seven, 140-pound but a tough little guy. He was in the Sergeant Major's office crying. And he told him, this is the only thing I got in the whole world. So, yeah. so we, uh, we kept him to the end of his enlistment, and then we redeployed. And, uh, and his vehicle hit an IED. They were going probably 25 miles an hour, and it flipped the vehicle over onto its top. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Washalana got out of there, uh, but he was badly broken up. There was another Marine. The, the driver got out without an issue. There was a Marine in the back that got out and got medevac, ended up dying two months later in the hospital. Gunner, or the uh, the vehicle commander, they took it out. 
a guy named Cook. Uh, they they got him out, and he died on the scene in Washington. And the first sergeant medevac at him and says, you know, I'm really sorry, first sergeant. They put him on the helicopter, and he died before they got into Al-Qaeda. And what got me about Washington is that, that he wasn't a troublemaker yeah. in uniform. He got in trouble out of uniform. People knew he was getting in trouble. They told him not to get in trouble. He still did it. Uh, and I got to know him because I gave him uh, – 45 and 45. So as a battalion commander, the first thing I did, you know, is hold off hours on a guy. And then I see him every night on extra duty. And so I talked to him after that. He was, uh, you know, he ain't going to say shit. He's back to being a private. Um, but, you know, I got to know him a little bit. And uh, uh, and then he got killed. And, uh, and by that time, he had been promoted back to PFC. He was a gunner on a vehicle. He was known as a good crewman. Uh, knew how to be a gunner, was a good driver, was a good crewman on a vehicle. They got in trouble all too often when he wasn't there. Not in uniform, not on duty. So I don't know if the guy's a shitbird or not. You know, right. it's really a. It's, and then. You know, to cap off the fucking story, uh, this judge uh, was a brigadier general in the, I want to say, retired in the Army Reserve, Jack Corps. And so when Washington gets killed, he leaves his SGLI, not to his mother, who's still alive. The relationship on his SGLI is a friend. I think it was a girl he had been in foster care with. But his mother is still the next kin. Um, so she controls his remains. And the judge says, why don't you put him in the military cemetery? I guess there's one in Oklahoma City. And uh, she doesn't want to do it. And she buries him. And, you know, if you think you've been to the edge of the earth, go down there to Gene Autry, Oklahoma. There's a cemetery behind a sort of defunct little red brick elementary school that they've turned into a museum and it's like across from a trailer park and she buried him in this place and uh, the only redeeming thing about it is there's a group down there like patriot riders or something like that that goes by every year and tends to his grave and it's it's just off I-35, so when I drive down to Dallas to see my daughter, they're going down or coming home, I always stop in there. And it is gratifying to see the number of people that have been there. People leave coins and flowers and shit like that on there. But it's like, God damn, put the guy in uh, in a respectable place in a national cemetery. And, you know, she couldn't even do that for the kid that she just fucked up her whole life. So tough story. Um I don't know how I got started on that, but uh, he was actually a pretty good Marine for a guy that got in a lot of trouble. Right. I, I had I had asked, you know, I, I took over Bravo 1-8 after I'd been to three. I think both Paul Kenny and I got screwed like that. So I just had the company just for a, a, a CAX before they deployed. I inherited a Lance Corporal who already had a, a, a one, one service stripe on his sleeve when we put on the Alphas, and he had problems with the drinking. And I love this kid. I still am in touch with him to this day. He had serious issues with drinking. 
But uh, I always kept him with the CP group for the little time I had. And whenever I lost a, a platoon somewhere, I'd send him off. I, I, I thought he would have made a great asset uh, with the shit hit the fan. But I would never I never knew. He he is a family man now and not a drinker anymore. He's he had a he's done very well for himself. I'm proud to say. But I, I've always wondered about that. I remember Mac getting ad, adamant. How would guys in Vietnam wear linked ammo around their shoulders if it didn't work when they tried to use it? That can't be right. I, I, we we'd be arguing about that excessively. I just wanted to ask, although I knew the answer. Well, me. again, my. What strikes me in my head is, look, when you have to play You Bet Your Life on a daily basis, it tends to eliminate the nonsense. You would think so. I would say, but there was still a lot of nonsense. Uh, No. I mean, think think about some things. I mean, it's, and again, it's two completely different circumstances, two completely different times. Um, But I got to tell you something, as a battalion commander, I was fucking death on stupidity. Now, we still had stupidity, but there was not graffiti and fucked up uniforms. And you had to wear a cover. I insisted on it because that sun would broil your fucking head. And it was interesting to me, and I reflected on it somewhat after that. You know, the people we knew that were Vietnam veterans, Van Riper, John Ripley, um, but the Peace Corps was not an overtly disciplined organization in many ways uh, there. So how could that be? Again, totally different circumstances, individual replacement units. Um, and I got to tell you, the 1st Marine Division was a fucking mess in the end of April of 2004. Uh, yeah. But there was a lot of stuff there that people did. That we all know is stupid, ill-disciplined. The 1st Marine Division H&S Battalion, Headquartered Battalion, bivouac in Diwania, in an area that had UXO around it. They had people that would... Okay, hold on, hold on. Well, a couple footnotes. You said April 2004. You meant April 2003. Sorry, correct. I'm sorry. April 2003. Okay, and could you explain to everybody what UXO is? Unexploded Ordnance. Uh, there's UXO in the bivouac areas. They're burning trash in trash pits at the corners of the battalion area at nightfall. We would call those target reference points. No shit. Old Iraqi buildings in there and people didn't want to necessarily sleep in the building. So they'd sleep on these flat roofs. There's, there's like a single ladder access. There's no handrails. And and they dug like one slit trench in the first, I don't know, five days we were there. And I'm watching this and I'm I'm brand new. I've been there, you know, a week and a half. And I realized these people are exhausted. Right? They're mentally drained, but this is insanity. There is no one who thinks any of this is a good idea, but then they all can't even see it. And this is pure and ill discipline that is going to get people hurt unnecessarily and sick. And then they ended up with the, uh, what's the novo neurovirus, whatever it is that went through that place and laid. Oh, yeah. But, but 
if you would have told the division, this is what you're going to look like the month before, they would have let, I mean, General Mattis would have kicked you out of the theater. But there they were. Okay, let me ask you a question. So do you see stupidity and lack of discipline as the same thing? There's, or, or, there's parts of it. Or different? No, there, there's, so, so people that don't wear their uniform properly, is that ill-discipline or stupid? That's ill-discipline. Ill-discipline. Ill yeah, the uniform actually protects you, but... People routinely didn't wear their uniforms properly in Vietnam. And and how can that be? And your answer, if you're talking about machine gun ammo, is, well, if they wore it unlinked because it worked for them, well, then you also can make the point that, well, wearing your flak jacket improperly and not wearing a blouse uh, and not wearing a cover, well, it worked for them. No, it didn't. It didn't work for them at all. Yeah, but not everything is the same. Yeah, I would. There's a there's a deeper argument to have there between somebody who just says fuck it and somebody who says I can't do this because of this, and therefore I'm going to either I'm I'm going to do this, and so wear blouse. Yeah. Well, you. No, no, that's a that's a that's a damn good point. And and, but in Vietnam, though, the flat jackets were were zippered and the Marines were terrified if they got hit, they couldn't get the zipper off. That's why they were unzipped all the time. That's what the old man told me. Because it's hotter. Oh, yeah. Well, it's hotter, too. But I I would see Afghan soldiers do stuff that was nearly. uh, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm with the skipper called into a grape, uh, uh, a grape producing area, a grape yard. What do you call those things? Those big vines with the vineyard. With I think the, uh, I think they're called vineyards. vineyards. Yeah, the, okay. The, we're in a vineyard. I'm not, IED, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You are a California guy. So <laughs> no, I'm not no, sure, no, but I mean, I'm at least the master of my state. On top of these big rows of dirt, <laughs> right? So it wasn't yeah. like a, a vineyard. So you're like inside uh, these big rows of dirt, and so Ralph, you know, he, they found an IED. Ralph goes up there, looks at it, goes, "Oh shit, I can't handle this. This is bad." He tells the Afghans, wait, we're going to call back to, to Fenty or whatever and get some help out. One of the Afghans goes, I'm tired of sitting here. I, at least I think that's what he said. Walks right past the fucking thing. Hoo, hoo, hoo. And there he goes. Airborne doing the coyote shuffle. Comes down without both his legs. Unfucking believable And you're looking at this and you're saying, why did you do that? I mean, this is why we stopped it. We said there's an IED here. I have no idea how, you, how to explain that kind of behavior. Guys just get yeah, sitting, wanna, sitting, I mean, sitting I around. Could, I could sit here all day and tell you a dumb Afghan, uh, Afghan screw-up story. That's true. Afghan soldier. The, uh, the Oscars, yeah, they're uh, same thing with Iraqis. They're, yeah, they're same like thing in Iraq, right? Send a junior yeah. guy, grab yeah. the power source to the ID, and tell that guy to yank it, and then cross your fingers. And when they yank it and it wouldn't detonate – you would see a celebration ensue that would, you know, that would rival Times Square, and that, and the, and the great celebrator was the junior guy who pulled the wire. That was a happy, but that, hey, that's what I mean. We're not going to sit here for two hours, right? Be a target and wait for you know American EOD to show up. Yeah. Not going to do that. And that's and you, I mean, and it'd, it'd be horrible when it wouldn't work out like that. So we could have just left the vineyard and walked away. I would say this. I would say this. There is some stupidity 
that we would look at and say, I don't understand that, behind which is thought and deliberate action. But yeah. I would say that is yeah. th- that is a minority of the stupidity that we see. The the vast majority is stupid because that's the way I'm allowed to do it, and it leads to bad things. Yeah, but, and, I mean, and that's why we always push hard on small unit leadership because what happens when you're a battalion commander or above, you know, you get word on how people get hurt. It's usually you're not there, you know. So I think it looks after a while like it's, you just got this group of fuck ups, you know. Well, there's a lot of people out there doing the right thing 90% of the time, but you don't hear about that because they don't get hurt. Yeah, I I say I've said it often, uh, you know, that unit was spread out of the area of the size of the state of West Virginia. On any given day, we were the best armored infantry battalion in the world, absolutely in the world. And we still screwed stuff up every day because it's hard. It's really hard. And it's hard to be 20 years old and squeezing guys that are 18. And it's hard to be 23 and squeezing guys that are 28. And so part, not your whole job, but part of your job as a CEO, as a Sergeant Major, is to make sure that people understand you've put out how you want things done and you're giving them, by your presence and activity, license yeah, please people constantly because I don't want you to wear your uniform because we're going to go to the parade deck on 8th and I and the commandant's going to be there. Right. I don't want you to wear your uniform because it protects you from so you don't catch on fire and from the bugs and from all the bad shit that happens. Now, when you're 19 years old and it's hot and it's dirty and the CEO is 150 miles away and he's not going to know shit, right? Well, I just want to not have to wear this blouse or my chin strap. Okay? And how often does that happen? Not very often because you got a lot of good small leaders and you actually have a lot of very disciplined Marines who understand and do the right thing. Right. How often do you pay a catastrophic price because you don't do one of those things? Not very often. But yeah. when you do, it drives you to absolute insanity. You know, you're right, man. I, it's like I watch, I see a film, and here's General McKenzie, the CG of CENTCOM, talking to the guy who's now in charge of uh, Afghanistan. They're walking along. And I remember when I first got to 3-8, he was a leaving, the CEO of India Company leaving. And I remember thinking, so when we've been talking here just now, I'm thinking, I wonder if General McKenzie remembers what exhaustion feels like. You know, because like, we, and we talked a little bit about it here, where you you come upon a scene and everybody like in a command group, like say a company command group or a, uh, a machine gun team, they're all dead ass asleep. And the reason is because they're exhausted. So you kick them awake, you know, and everything like that. You don't kick them because you're, 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 you know, you're punishing them. It's so they don't die, you know? And, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, everything you said, you know, is uh, is a factor but then there's the exhaustion factor and, and, I mean, and you so, were talking about that with being on the roofs you know will those guys yeah. they're shocked they're exhausted i talked to my stepson who was in one five during the march up you're talking about they just collapsed a lot of times because no yeah. one you know they just uh yeah it was appalling and but that that brings i think we've talked about this but i i can't get away from 
trying to do Kunar with helmets and, and body armor. That that you know that protection is it, the exhaustion factor when you're talking about climbing and gaining four or five thousand feet in elevation. That, that with in body armor and helmet, you you can't do it. Yeah, I, I and, mean, and it's to me there. You know, this idea that that we're going to allow local commanders uh, to determine what the appropriate you know, force protection in terms of body armor and helmets is. I love the idea, but it ain't never going to happen. No, it's not. Right. I love it too, though. And it's it's one of those where that's where the, the mid-senior level leaders, I'm talking probably two stars, colonel to two star, need to really have a sack. And you need to trust down there that the battalion commander, company commander, are going to understand the local conditions. But as Jeff said, you know, when someone would get wounded, one of the most important documents that had to go out, this was after my time there, right. was yeah. was the haberdasher's report yeah. on all <laughs> yeah. the equipment and was it properly worn. <laughs> the Truman report. Yeah. yeah. It was unbelievable. You should see, I still have my PCR. Lori kept it. It looks like, I'm like, I wasn't wearing that shit. Like had side <laughs> and uh, I had paperback books because I, I had the side sappy holders, but I didn't have the actual side sappy. You didn't get them yet. Well, and my PCR had me at a groin protector. I couldn't fucking get in the fucking Hummer with all the shit that I had in there and everything and run the Blue Force tracker with all that crap. And, you uh, know, so. interesting, the evolution of the force when they deployed in 2003. They didn't have enough sappy plates for everyone. Right. And so I know that there were a significant number of officers and staff NCOs in first LAR, this was before my time there, that didn't have any sappy plates to make sure that every other Marine in the battalion had one. And then those Marines were pissed off because, oh, the fucking lieutenant doesn't have to wear a sappy, and I do because they're fucking heavy. (laughs) Because you're better on the 25 than the fucking lieutenant. Yeah. And then we got issued, you know, they started doing the groin protector and there was, there wasn't anyone who wore that shit yeah. uh, in 2004. Cause again, it was still the wild west, but probably within a year after that, it was, you know, all the way down. And a lot of now, you should wear a groin protector. Sense. You should wear a groin protector when you go to the Philippines or patio beach <laughs> in Thailand, not when you're in the, you know, I had two two experiences. One is a lieutenant in one five. We went up to China Lake, and in my head is General Zinni in that PME talking about you know I hate the helmets and flak jackets in in Vietnam. If you fought in the northern part of I Corps, you were going up mountains, you know. And then he talks about twenty meter contour lines, and we're doing twenty feet here in the United States. And he does this whole comedy routine on you know for every one guy they saved, they killed you know. You know, I don't. I can't remember what he said. Nine guys. He said, "I don't believe me." He said, "They're countermobility." He said, "You know." He said, "I think they're they're a detriment." And so, I will's absolutely right that you need regimental commanders. You need division commanders that will say and back up that your PPE has to be a function of your enemy threat assessment. And I will stand behind you a hundred percent. Then, so I, we go to China Lake when I'm with one five second lieutenant first lieutenant and these guys come out 
and they're, they've worked on the Dragon and some other shit. And they're talking about weapons that are coming to market. And so they say, like, this is man-portable at 115 pounds. And then, <laughs> right? Exactly. And they hear this. They nice. hear, but you got to pitch it. Yeah, you, you got to pitch this guy. He's in a pair of gray slacks. He's got a black belt on. He's got the pocket protector. No bullshit. And his white shirt, right, open at the collar, with, but it's a short sleeve white shirt on, right? Your basic fucking dork, right? And so when he says it's man portable at 150 pounds, he's doing this presentation, and he hears everybody laugh. And he, just, <laughs> and he stops because he doesn't get the punchline. And he said, why did everybody laugh? And then some staff sergeant. funny guy. <laughs> yes. Some staff sergeant puts his hand up, and he said, he said, sir, do you know what we're carrying already? And then you said it was man portable at 115 pounds. He said, that's going to kill somebody. And then this guy says, you know, it's good that you guys come up here and that we learn this kind of stuff, you know, because, you know, otherwise, you know, we wouldn't know. And you're sitting there going, God help us. And then do you remember the first time the issue with Side Sappies came up in, big in the news? I think it was the mother of a seal. And I don't even know if he was killed, but he was shot through the side. And she finds out, I would think he's probably killed in action, but finds out that was not wearing his Side Sappies. And she raised hell wanting to know that why it wasn't a requirement, you know. And so I think General Kelly was a brigadier at the time, and he was running OLA. And he had somebody show up, uh, you know, probably somebody on his staff, dressed in the full battle rattle with, I don't think he took live ammunitions <laughs> into, the, into the committee room, but I think they simulated the weight of the magazines in the magazine pouches. I don't know how he did that. And let me tell you, when a mags, you know, when you were wearing your sapping protectors and, and you're full of ammunition, I mean, and you put the whole thing on with water and all that, and he said, this is what they're wearing now. And you want to add another, what would side sappies been? Five, ten pounds they're, each? They're, they're two, po- there's, there's a total of 10 pounds, yeah. So you're going to add another 10 pounds. And so, and General Kelly, he said, look, I just want to make the point. This is what they wear in in both places, Afghanistan and Iraq. You're going to deal with temperatures that routinely are above 100 degrees. Not exceptionally, but routinely. And this is what they're going to go to work in. And everybody had the same response. Oh, I didn't know that. This yeah. is what they wear. Yeah. The second, when I first time I went to Afghanistan, I had the side sappy thing, and I had already been blown up. And I, the one of the peculiarities of my wounds were, if I had shit pressed on my sides, I go into spasm, where all the fucking tore up cartilage inside my upper body. So I put the paperbacks I stole from guys like you. I put them in my uh, side sappy plate to make it look like I was wearing something. I thought, well, if it's like a piece of shrapnel that already went through somebody, it'll stick in like. My book and my fields of my paperback fields of fire book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just don't read a short, right, paperback book, right? Make it be something like written by Michener because it'll stop something. Yeah, right? yeah. Michener. Yeah, that's too heavy, man. <laughs> Come on. You might as well have the plate. <laughs> the, the, um, did you all get a chance to listen to the Franz Marty interview that I did? Yes, I did. I know Tim I listened did. To, I listened to the Guadalcanal guy. 
Got it. Yeah. Well, Tim, so I, I want to, Tim introduces me to Franz Marty. He's a interesting guy. Uh, he's Swiss. He's been in Afghanistan for six and a half years as a freelance journalist. And, uh, so I picture Franz Marty as kind of like our friend Jeff Dan. He decides he's Swiss and he wants to go, you know, tour the world and he goes to Tajikistan. Like, who the fuck does that? Right, so that's he. He winds up going to Afghanistan, so he's, you know, he goes back as a freelance journalist. Very interesting, and he's the author of the article that we talked about a week ago, and essentially footnoting the quote, Taliban quote unquote momentum, the lack of serious fighting, and how these districts are are falling. So he says, well, this is what it actually is going on. So he came on, and I'm. Timmy, I'd be curious your thoughts after listening to that interview. Oh, I, I, I think that uh, just like when General Mattis's book came out and the only place in the whole uh, uh, Internet sphere that you could hear him talk off of his topic line was with your interview. Remember that? Because every other interview he did was the same interview except for with you. Once again, you've stumbled upon a guy in Afghanistan who's who's not – parroting the mainstream uh, uh, media and has serious depth of knowledge. I liked it. He was correct when he talks about Afghanistan's sense of a country in that the king did have a an effect in the provinces. You know, I think one of the things that's different with the current government than the old government is the legal system. Back when there was a king, the legal system was the mullahs. That the mullahs decided all legal. The, the king didn't get involved with that. And I, I, I think that's the only thing, because Franz was sort of taking us to task with some of our characterizations, and I agree with him. But, but there are some... Um, well, but again, but I would tell you, he, you know? he, would, he would disagree with me and say, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that. But then, as in his discussion, for instance, that Afghanistan's not a country, right? Right. And he said, oh, no, he said, I would disagree with that. But by the end of his argument, he agrees. He agrees with us by saying, by saying, it, they'll tell you it is a country, but nobody agrees on what the country is. That's, the the, that's, the, the that's Tajiks right. have a, have an, have one idea. The Pashtuns have, you know, a different idea, and so everybody's got a different idea. And he said, so their concepts are all different. And then I'm thinking, well, I think you just agreed with us, right? <laughs> Yeah, but 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 there's it's not like the Tajiks are trying to become part of Tajikistan and it's not like the Pashtuns are trying to stand up a Pashtunistan. In that respect he's he's correct, but the flavor of the entire administration is different than the traditional values of the Afghans. Yeah. And I but I tell you what, that was a great interview and it gives an accurate reading. I I I like Jeff said when he read the article, it sounds it rings true to me. You know what I mean? You know, the one thing is, though, who fucking cares? That's the only you know, thing. Uh, the only thing missing from that is the rim shot. I so fucking knew that was coming. But it's, it's it's a point. It's a point you can't avoid. The world cares, Will. You but may you may not. No, no, if the world cared, they'd define what the problem is, and then they'd solve You don't even know basic information about the, the your home state. I actually <laughs> was not named after the Empire State. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, I mean, if I had never gone there, I, I mean, if, like, we never got involved in a war in Afghanistan, I'm, I would be with Will 100%. But now I've been there, like, coming on up on almost three years total. And uh, 
so I got um, memories of the place and everything, and uh, and and so much effort, you know, and risk personally, I put yeah, it. Yeah, no shit. So you know, I, I, uh, I but I, I, I have to say I agree with like it's uh, the more we try and support their government, I realize now that's the that was the uh, the problem. It's like Hercules, one of his labors was fighting with this guy who every time the guy hit the ground, he got up stronger. We had to strangle them off the ground, you know, in order to win. It's like that there. It's like the, the stronger the central government is in Afghanistan, the more the people, I mean, all the people who the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, especially the Pashtuns, the stronger the central government is, the more they resent it. And the best way my dad used to tell me and my sister when my, him and my mom would go out, Mary Ellen, you do whatever Jeffrey says. Jeffrey, don't tell Mary Ellen to do anything, you know, and the idea of keeping peace. And so I think, that's Afghanistan. It's like the, the it only works with a light touch, and they and they're such thieves. Like Karzai, I mean Timmy. One of Timmy's texts, he kind of you know hit on a on a huge uh, issue. Karzai, he actually started the second unofficial war there, trying to fucking make the people in the Korangal pay taxes for the timber that they're floating down the rivers in Pakistan and stuff, and trying to squeeze money out of the thing, you know. Because that's what people in governments do. They squeeze money out of the fucking people they're supposed to be representing. And that's the way they see it in Afghanistan. It's not too different than a lot of the way we saw it here in 1776. You know what the tell was regarding that timber? He made it illegal to harvest timber, but not illegal to sell it. Yeah. Yeah, you see, it was shit like that that really pissed the locals off. Yeah, you know, so that's my that's my feeling of it. One of the yeah. things that was interesting, I thought about what Franz said. You know, because we've talked about, and you guys have, I think, quite accurately predicted that Afghanistan is going to be what Afghanistan is, right? Which is the Taliban will c- control much of the country, most of the rural areas. Uh, they will struggle to administer it. That will create probably the the elements that were the Northern Alliance to get back together. They will be forced back together. And then, but I think what one of the things he said that was interesting and illuminating was <clears throat> the Taliban are trying to use um, social media to convince at the Afghans to surrender the government because they have all this momentum, right? General Milley in that press conference yesterday, I think, said something that was that is true. They have the equipment and they've been trained. The question that will play out is: Do they have the will? To fight for yeah. Afghanistan, I, I, do, do and they I've have, got some. I've got and so, some updates. And so, to me, so what you're going to see is exactly what you guys kind of postulated, which is the Taliban will control what they control. Uh, they will administer it poorly, right? And from that will come a, a civil war, more than likely, at some point in the future. The major urban areas is where you know the the federal government, you know, and federal troops will be. And they will be governed, uh, you know, by the people that run those major cities. And that's what, you know, you guys predicted. And the Taliban will, and that's what they're doing now, attempt to inflate their own success, right? And and then get the federal government to capitulate. The federal government will not capitulate because we will continue to send money. And then the other thing I thought was interesting was what the SECDEF said about the -the over-the-horizon capability. He's, he said, look, that capability is designed to be a counter-terrorist capability, which meant it's not designed to be, kind of draws a line there, it's not des- designed to be a support the Afghan military capability. 
which I thought was was kind of subtle but significant, saying, look, you know, him essentially doing the Pontius Pilate. They're, they will be what they will be to include their, their armed forces. We're not going to be over the horizon launching the same kind of airstrikes in support of them that, that we have been. I thought that was kind of an interesting point as well. Timmy? I've, uh, I've, I've been getting a lot of email and phone calls from Afghanistan, uh, guys trying to get out, obviously. And I, I saw something interesting. Mac, you're aware of this because I was talking to Marty, and you've been in these emails between Marty and I. Had a, 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 a one of the people that introduced me to, to Afghanistan, a guy named Dan Terry, was 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 killed in 2010, and his driver, who was also killed, his little son, who I actually met when he was a boy, uh, is now an Afghan commando, shot and wounded in Ferris City, captured by the Taliban. The oh. Taliban let the rest of his platoon go, and there's a bunch of elders from the village of Sarobi, those would be Hague affiliated dudes, heading to heading to Farah. And they feel like they're going to be able to talk Taliban into giving them this this kid's uh, back so they can get him treated. So the Taliban, when they're captured, guys that have been fighting them to include the commandos, they're letting them go. That's 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 rather significant. It's it, it, that's that is part of their play to get the Afghan people to think that they're a different kind of Taliban. But we'll have to see how this works out. Uh, also, uh, with the, in Jalalabad, uh, my Jalalabad guy says that uh, the government controls the city, the Taliban controls the surrounding districts up in the mountains, ISIS is still there, and the only fighting is between the Taliban and ISIS. That's who's fighting. Yeah, I, I would say they you know, that. If you're the, if you're the SECDAV or the chairman, and you have to say they've got the training and equipment, the only question is, do they have the will? You just answered that's your the, question. That's that's of course, that's true. Let me tell you, that's the biggest surprise of the whole thing because I thought that what that was going to go was if you're the sector, right, and you don't ask the question, who gives a fuck? You're really not doing their job. (laughs) So that's the the, not doing his job. This was an observation. (laughs) That's the surprise of the whole, you know, hour and ten minutes that we've been together today, right there, Jeff. You were going to say something. You forgot. Um, I forgot. Well, actually, I was going to talk. Was, Timmy, Timmy, that Sarobi, Jalalabad, I'm, that's the area I was in. Matter of fact, a friend of mine, I emailed, I was talking about, talking about the podcast. I said, yeah, I, you don't know how shocked I was to see Tim in 2009. Here, Here's this guy. Somebody wants to see you. I'm like, who the fuck wants to see me? And, and here Tim shows up looking like fucking Peachy Carnahan from <laughs> – uh, you know, the man who would be king, and uh, I was like flabbergasted, man. Oh, but, that was uh, hey, it hey was man, great though. It was great, you know. Be, hey, hey, when I went be- out to Dwyer to see Mac and Dave, right, uh, for for a Marine Corps birthday, Sergeant Major Zukafus hooked me up with all the confiscated booze because he was tired of dumping it, right? So I take. <laughs> Two bottles of scotch. I give them to the to the pilots for uh, uh, our, our. We had three planes in the company. I said, "You got to take me to Delaran too." He says, well, "We can't land there yet. It's not open." I said, "Yeah, I got two bottles of scotch. It says it's open." They go, "Oh fuck, we'll do that." Wham! They dram on Delaran too. Out comes all these friggin' vehicles with MPs and stuff. I get out. I've got. I'm in Afghan clothes. I got my rifle and shit. They pull up and they're looking at me. I said, "Hey, is Paul Kennedy here? I want to see him." And these guys are looking. They call up. The CEO said, they, they get Colonel Kennedy. He said, there's somebody here. To, this guy is dressed like an Afghan. I don't And he goes, what's his name? He said, I said, what's your name? So I said, Tim Lynch. He goes, arrest him immediately and bring him to me. <laughs> <laughs> and they jacked me up. 
He took my gun and shit and fucking hooked me up and bought me to Kennedy, who was laughing his ass off at me. He goes, don't ever do that shit to me again, Timmy. You're not supposed to be here. I'm like, oh, sorry, man. Jesus. You know, uh, his uh, the brigade commander he was partnered with, that guy, Wasse, did you meet him? Yeah, yeah. I know. I met him. I didn't know him. Yeah, he's yeah. pretty good for an yeah. Afghan. Yeah, for, I, Afghan I, I, Paul liked him. That's all I knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the reason he was good, because he, he had Paul, and then he had Eric Smith. And if you talk to him, and then he had, after Eric Smith, he had uh, Renforth. And Sparky, I don't think I ever met him. Met him once, maybe. Huh. But uh, he never would stop talking about Paul Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. Quite, yeah, well, quite, takes, quite, takes a few years the, to get him out of your system. That's what it is. Quite the, un- <laughs> quite the unforgettable human being. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk about the CNO, if we could do that real quickly, and then we'll talk about wh- what we're reading. Um I find the CNO, and so my question is going to be, is he playing the part? What the fuck? Okay, so the Navy has said we need between 3 and 5% real growth in our budget to get to where we need to be. This number of 355 ships gets thrown out there. And I want to talk about Representative Luria's article next week, okay, about her vision. Um, but anyway... The Navy's nowhere close to 3 to 5% real growth. And the CNO doesn't come out and say, I can't keep pace with the pacing threat, and yet we hear this divest to invest thing. You know, um, is CNO just not up, up to the job? And this whole concept of, you know, and if I, it makes me wretch whenever I hear it. Speak truth to power, which nobody fucking does. Right. So is the CNO just playing the game of not trying to embarrass the Biden administration because in spite of trying to be the pacing threat, in spite of everybody knowing that the first fight is going to be, you know, in space, the second fight is going to be, you know, in the air and on the water. And that's going to be the fight. Right. Um, In spite of that, you know, the Biden administration not funding it, but nobody wants to say that in this whole budget process. Right. Well, was he in, was he in testimony? He, he spoke at a land, air, sea conference, some yeah, shit. That's the thing. Right. I mean, yeah. the, the place, the place that that needs to be is, is, uh, well, what should happen if he actually cares? Well, uh, hold on. Let me just, so the stories that you've seen <laughs> this week, which is the continuing narrative is that he says, I need this, and he doesn't get that, and he says this continues to put us on the glide path to this new Navy thing. And then he's got representatives, Democratic and Republicans, saying the Navy isn't doing their job with their 30-year shipbuilding plan because we need numbers. And what the Navy's giving us is, is intervals. Well, those intervals are, are the difference in billions of dollars. And we need the Navy to do what it's supposed to do. So he's being ripped by congressmen who are who are on the, you know, force projection subcommittee or some whatever. So in the context of that, he goes and makes a speech and says, "This is why this course of action is appropriate." Q will. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if he was if he was serious and had a serious throwdown in the building and lost a throwdown and he wanted to redeem. He would send his OLA rep over to Congress and say, next testimony, these are the questions I want you to ask me so that it's not me volunteering that the that the administration's jacked up. But 
I've taken an oath and I'm going to supply a correct answer. But then the other part of this is, look, he's got an impossible task, right? He's been told to build a lumber yard with toothpicks or make chicken salad out of chicken shit, and it can't be done. The Navy's upside down, so many billions, and I don't know if they have a concept of where they want to go. And so then it comes down to, well, I sort of said what we needed, but I'm not going to get it, so I'm going to try and make the best out of it, and that's why we're on the glide path or blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not I'm not sympathetic uh, in the slightest uh, because in the end, it's my favorite Navy in the whole world, right? But that being mine said, too. There are yeah. others like it, but this one is mine. This one is mine. <laughs> you know, it's the same way I feel about the Army. Um, yeah. Yeah, we want good things to happen for them. Uh, but it, it we want takes, them to be good. It takes serious serious leadership and they're they're just not there the navy is just not there i'm not i don't know that any of the services are right now yeah and this idea of how do we become the force what is our vision and how do we become that And, and also how do you form a consensus on capitol hill to that. And, and there's another question I got, like for you, Will. I mean, uh, how, when they keep ginning up these trillion dollar stimulus things and shoving them, you know, I mean, uh, I don't think we've even spent the one from when Trump was president. You know, they keep the, 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 this current administration keeps ginning these things up and pushing them through and pushing, you know, the, the Senate to, can, to uh, you know, to ratify this stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, the last one, they didn't even write the bill yet, and they want them to go ahead and vote on it. You know, and it's like, uh, it's insane. I'm thinking, how can a, how can DOD get a cent, a cent with this stuff going on? You know what I mean? Yeah. I well, mean, let me, let me, but let me go back. Is Gil, is it Gilday? Is it the system? Is he is he not the guy to do it? I don't think any of them can do anything. No, I don't. I, yeah, right now, the the Navy is not a serious organization. You know, and it hasn't been for a while. And I think the Luria article is worthy of the discussion and then go back and answer why the Navy is not a serious organization. She posits okay, so, a very interesting thought. So that's there. that's the assignment for next week. All right. The Luria article. And then we'll go back to that question after we and, discuss. And her that's article. a good Mac. That's a good assignment because it it makes us delve into the effects of uh, of the. uh Goldwater Nichols. Uh, no, the uh, the the, uh, the um the god damn it in the in the mid eighties the, the the thing that made us all have joint you know uh, yeah Goldwater Nichols Goldwater yeah, Nichols yeah. yes what the fuck all, just happened yeah. <laughs> I just said that I said that you said no no you didn't what did I say what you didn't say shit. <laughs> <laughs> I just forgot it for a minute. Go water. No, you didn't. You had it, and Mac interrupted you. That was, uh, <laughs> what the fuck? That fucking Empire State is named after the Empire State. <laughs> Who knew that it wasn't? <laughs> Who knew that it wasn't? Where did that come from? <laughs> oh, even a rube like you, a carpetbagger like you, knew that. That's what a shock. At least I knew what a vineyard was. 
Hey, look, everybody says dumb shit once in a while. When I was a second lieutenant, Will asked me on the radio where I was. I said, I'm right underneath the moon. This is a guy, 30-year-old fucking second lieutenant, all kind of prior enlisted experience. What's your location? I go, well, I'm right under the moon. That was at... Uh, that was in Verona Loop. Remember that, Will? <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck, I wish I could call that back. That's the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. Were you being sarcastic? No. We were in the middle of a raid, you know, and I was, uh, I was supposed to be the support element, but things got fucked up. I ended up being the assault element. But he was right under the moon. But I was. And under were the... almost all of us. <laughs> <laughs> The moon has a big. That's I'm confused. I'm confused now. Because yeah. it's you know because Rain Man he he doesn't say too much that's like that stupid. And you said <laughs> and and it was in the clear, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believe it, it I believe over here before it under the moon. But we should everybody on this podcast should freely admit fuck ups. Like ever since Tim set the stage was saying that he was not only the only guy who of us who shot at somebody with a forty five, but had been shot with a forty five, and then right away owns up to being that he's the one who shot himself. <laughs> Everybody I know who listens to my, admires the fuck out of Tim for having the to do that. It, it technically wasn't all my fault, just mostly. No, no. Those fucking you gotta be a man about it though. Under the Those moon though, but I mean I would say that you're like your borderline genius and I, but it sounds to me like you're. It's like he said that. If I was so will, when you heard that, what did you think? He's fucking with me. <laughs> That's what I would say. This this arrogant little fucking prick is <laughs> is fucking that? with me. That? Is fucking with me. I, I asked him bigger problems at that point. It was <laughs> panting. It's, actually, Will was listening. I said it to Captain Ratliff. I think it was our company commander that, and. uh but it was like it was one of those panting and fucking a lot of yelling and shit and people keying the handset too long. And my radio operator was a good kid, but uh, he couldn't keep up with me. And so the company commander, Mike Ratliff, would be trying to get hold of me. And he, he I, I was just, un, you know, not by my radio operator as much as I should have been. And so he would blame my radio operator, who's a guy named Flesner. And he wrote on his helmet band, he wrote Flesh for Fantasy after that song by uh, Billy Idol. And uh Captain Ralph said, God damn it, I'm sick of calling you on the radio and not being able to hold you. You tell Flesh for fantasy to keep that handset in his ear or I'll shove it up his ass. <laughs> that was like the same time frame as I was under the moon. Oh, wow. I'm under the moon. I just I just find it. I mean, you're an experienced infantryman. I was right under the moon. You know that the moon is generally not something that we use as a reference point. I right. went back to before um, fucking uh, Pythagoras, man. <laughs> you know what? That makes it all. That makes it all make sense. Yeah. All right. What are you reading? Will are you still in the Atkinson uh, trilogy? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, late in the second book, so they just they just uh, they're getting ready to break out of Anzio and head to Rome finally. Give, um, give us a uh, give us a a quality tidbit from your week's worth of reading. One thing, well, one gem. One gem. General Truscott. General Truscott. I would say one thing that's interesting that you knew this, but it it comes out again. Uh, Mark Clark 
is the CG of Fifth Army. So Fifth mm-hmm. Armory is two corps. Each corps had two divisions in it. That Mark ain't Clark, shit. Yeah, Mark Clark is 48 years old. You know, he's, he's probably never been a regimental commander, definitely not a division commander. He's a colonel sitting as an army commander. Uh, and also, interestingly, a couple of the division commanders were senior to him by six yeah. or eight years, uh, had been instructors of his at West Point or like at uh, Lucas and Truscott. Yes. Yeah. And so if you look at the Italian campaign up to this point, it's very sort of unimaginative and uncoordinated. Um, you know, the air is coordinated almost at the theater level. Uh, the Navy is definitely coordinated at the theater level. Uh, there's a lot of single unit attacks that turn into bloodbaths. In like fact, San one, Pietro. Yeah. One dis, one one of the quotes is it's a first it's a great war battle fought with Second World War weapons. Um yeah. but then you look at these guys and they were, you know, and Eisenhower in many ways was the same way. They're smart guys, they're uh well-educated, thoughtful, caring, but they genuinely are inexperienced at the level that they're at. And unfortunately, gaining that experience costs a lot of blood. Uh, And that's sort of Atkinson is making that point. He doesn't make it within these particular officers per se, but it really, it, it comes back to you when you're talking about a guy who, uh, Probably, I don't know, I didn't look into his bio. I'm not sure he ever commanded a battalion in the field. And I'm not talking in the war. That I know for sure. But Are you talking the- about Mark Clark? Yeah. Well, you know, Mark Clark had one day of combat in World War One, and he got shot yeah. going over the top. And, uh, yeah, so, and that's his whole, I think the reason he got that job is because he looked good. And like you yeah. say, he's smart. And he was kind of um, in the North Africa thing. There's a little bit of skullduggery. Right, right. He was a deputy. It it is something that compared to, you know, our experience uh, when you don't get three levels of promotion because we expand by a hundredfold, you know, regimental commanders have been battalion commanders and have been at least in exercise and division commanders very often. so seeing these guys and some of the, because the Italian campaign is pretty brutal, um, huge casualties. And it, each the British and the Americans are constantly describing each other as unimaginative and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, that was one of the things that came to me. Yeah, these guys were the same age as I was when I was a colonel. And they're army commanders. That's you know, not an easy transition. That was not what you were I teed up for you. So congratulations. Well, so I'll read these things. Mac, have you read Atkins, Atkins' trilogy about World War II? No. My answer, no. Well, in the middle of book two, some stats on what we now call PTSD. Quote, after 200 to 240 days in combat, nearly all infantrymen 
not dead or wounded would be psychiatric casualties. Mac, footnotes, question mark, will, doesn't even pause. One million servicemen hospitalized during the war for neuropsychiatric symptoms. I'm on Kindle, so hard to figure this out. I'll get my iPad for a better look. 30,000 British deserters in Italy. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I never did get the footnotes. Thank you very much. But, no, well, I, I told but, you, you can't, you can't copy and paste footnotes from iPad. Oh, it's impossible. Yeah. So it's impossible. So you failed. But you That's know, what you're telling Matt, me. I got the give a shit that book. Much. I'll be home. I'll be home tomorrow I'll night. Buy your own book. I might be able to do that because I got the Thank, hardcover book. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. And while you may have, I appreciate may have teed that up for me, that's what he told me. The thing about these commanders, I actually had to read something, think about it, and synthesize a new idea. Oh, well, wow. Yeah. How is that I'm to do that? For the, how is that to do for the first time in your life? It must have been daunting. Well, it's probably – the tenth time I've done it on the show today, so I'm used to. It. Where did thir- to, to paraphrase somebody? Where did thirty thousand deserters in Italy go? I know. Think about it. <laughs> they it's go like to Naples. Divisions. They go to Naples and get laid. Yeah. Same oh, thing I where... forgot the stats about the number of people they had in a hospital for VD, for... but it was yeah. several regiments. Wow. Yeah. When, 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 hey, when, when war was good. When war was good, drunk, and I came home with a drinking problem and the chronic case of the clap. And the dirty bore. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, penicillin just came of age during this Mm -hmm. Italian campaign. Thank God. And first of all, they weren't giving it to German, wounded German prisoners because they didn't have enough. And I think it was in there that there was some discussion about wounded versus VD cases. Who was going to get penicillin? Yeah. Oh, that would be interesting discussion. Do you remember yeah. how they adjudicated that? I got it. I'll go back. I, I'm not. I may have just made that up, but I think that <laughs> you know. Hey, you know, Will. Uh, I don't know if it's in that book or the next one, but he, Atkinson's got interesting stuff to say about Audie Murphy, which is one of my favorite. You know. Yeah. Guys. Part part of it is in that book. Yeah. Buddy Murphy comes of Because that's also related to PTSD. You know? What's he say? Audie Murphy. Well, from what I remember, Audie Murphy, by, by the time, Audie Murphy's spectacular stuff he does to get the Distinguished Service Cross, two silver stars, and the Medal of Honor happened in the last 90 days he's in combat. And uh, the theory is he had been through so much shit, Sicily, Colombia, <laughs> the the Italian Peninsula, that uh, and he had such a high sense of uh, pride that he was trying to commit suicide by German, you know, and uh, that there's a there was an element of that possibly, you know. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you know what? Um, kind of like the Mike Strength thing, right? Where he tells yeah. where he tells his dad, "Hey, I'm not going to make it through this next one." And his dad says, "Michael, don't you know? Don't 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 talk like that." And he says to his dad, "Dad, each of us only has so much good luck. I've used up all mine. There's no way I'm going to go through a third one of these and continue to have the luck that I've had in the first two. So this is probably the last time you're going to see me, right? And it's that it's that I've seen so much, right? That sense of mortality that it doesn't matter what I fucking do. I can't control what happens." So fuck it, right? 
Interesting. Well, um, you know, I read this biography at John Huston, the director, right. who also was in the Italian campaign. He did a famous documentary called The Battle of San Pietro, which was which was uh, censored. It was so brutal. It was a real but, documentary. But doesn't he have he, a, a breakdown and they send him home, right? I don't know if he had a breakdown, but he because that doesn't come out in the bio I read about that. But he definitely was affected by it. But what does come out was he's making in 1946 or 47. He's making the movie Red Badge of Courage, the first one ever right, made, right. from the book by uh, you know by Stephen uh, Crane. Stephen Crane, right? And uh, he chooses Henry Fleming to be played by Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy. And holy shit, he goes, holy Christ! Now at that time, Audie Murphy was staying with James Cagney. He said, "Hey, I want to use this kid, you know, to make you know." And they're both of them. They're talking about. They're they're appalled at the first of all the kid. You can hardly understand Audie Murphy. He's got such a heavy Texas accent mixed in with a bunch of obscenities he learned from in the army, crawling up the Italian peninsula and into France, you know? And um, he uh, he has fucking nightmares, and he's constantly getting in – he's like 130 pounds. But he sees uh, – he'll see – he'll get belligerent with, you know, stuntmen and shit like that. They'll have bare-knuckle fights and stuff. And uh, they it shows how they manage to corral – you know, they get the best out of him. Or a red badge of courage, and there's a part in there where Henry owns up to running away, and Audie Murphy will not say, I ran away. He will not say it. Finally says, I lit out. And the guy who's playing his friend is the guy who wrote all those Willie and Joe cartoons, Bill Maudlin. So it's that's a great old movie to watch, but it's interesting about, because uh, John Huston and I think Atkinson also, they talk about Audie Murphy and PTSD and the whole thing, you know? It wasn't, I, I'm not, I'm thinking of the wrong John. It was John Ford, the other great. Oh, John Ford. He, he he's, he's at, yeah. yeah, he was at, uh, I think the story is, he was with F- Frank Capra and John Stevens. They put together all these people that had worked at Hollywood to document the Normandy invasion. And, oh, yeah. and, and I believe it's Ford who, because of what he sees, he collapses into this PTSD, alcoholic funk, and they send him home. Interesting. All right, Timmy, what are you reading? Well, after last week, I'm reading Edward Morris's book on Theodore Roosevelt, and I want to real quick give a shout-out to uh, <laughs> one of our fans who listens live. He's running his own restaurant. Former, I think he was a ranger named Her- Hercus Monty, who, when after our show last week, I went back and looked on my Facebook account like two months ago, he had sent me a a Facebook post with Edmund Morris's Roosevelt book saying, hey, you guys should really read this. It's good. (laughs) So, Herkus, I hope you're not having us uh, live on your in in your restaurant. But uh, if you are so good on you. But but uh, thanks for the tip. I just wanted to get another shout out there to one of our loyal fans. Yeah, you know, I think he's a I'm pretty sure it's uh, he's a friend of my wife's. Is connected to her on her. That, that would not. I, yeah. I got people. There's, there's people I, I know and talk to all the time. I'm not sure how we ever got connected in the first place. And I, I, I think Herkus might have run into me in, in Afghanistan, but I'm not sure. Good name, Herkus Monty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. classic Monty, name. Good man. Bob Monty is named after Marine who got killed up there. One of he's related to him. Don't know. Is if if I'm thinking of the same guys from like. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin, or Milwaukee, or something like that. Yeah, Herkus is a Texas boy. What yeah. about uh, Timmy? Give us I, one little snippet from your reading oh, this when, week about oh, when, about when, Roosevelt. It is 
goddamn bizarre the intensity with which he pursued his first wife uh, and, and the way that that his feelings were were all of aligned with how she was either treating him well or bad because apparently she played him along. He marries this woman. All he he promptly abandons her and goes to to, to New York to uh, 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 to take part in a legislator legis, as a legislator. Excuse me, but it's obvious he's that the, that he's totally in love with this woman. There's no not the apple of his eye. She unfortunately dies during uh, after after uh, delivering his first child, and he never mentions her word again, yeah. ever, ever. Same day his mom died too. Same no. day his mom died. Okay. Never yep. mentions right. her name again. As if you were to know him later in life, you would have never known about her. Even though when he was in college and his and starting out, uh, all anybody talked about was him and this. Uh, uh, good God, I forgot her name and already. I, I guess I'm horrible. I think I think the, the the daughter's name is Alice. Yeah, that was, yeah. Kid. The, yeah, in, the kid's name is the Alice. infamous daughter. Man. Yeah, yeah, the but infamous but anyway, daughter. I'm surprised that Roosevelt. That just seems to be a very peculiar thing. I I don't I don't understand. I think, I think that, that would that be a word though. Shit like that. I, he's a New Yorker. I think if that if you would use the word peculiar and say, okay, can you give me one human being who personifies this word? It would be Theodore Roosevelt. He was not in a, like in a, in a positive way. Yeah, he was not. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I mean that that story. I mean, to never ever utter, you know, your first wife's name again in your life. Yeah, it's it's weird. That's and, and he that goes out peculiar. west on this buffalo hunt, and it's you know how it is when it's raining and pouring and the mud gets slick and the clay turns into slides. He goes out five days in a row in the rain, like he's going to see a buffalo in the pouring rain, and loves it. Dude, that is that's a man. I can't this do that. Bully. I, I can bully. suck up bad weather, but I can't suck up weather like that, not willingly. What a fucking lunatic. But what a great man. I, I'm just enjoying it. You know, that's how he was described, I, though. He's a, he's a lunatic, and by people who loved him, he's a lunatic. And as Jeff yeah. said, he's out that's in North Dakota. Yeah, he's out in North Dakota. And he's and he's living in the mud and shit, and nobody else is even out there. And he says like something like in aristocratic upper st- upstate New York English. This is absolutely marvelous time, man. This is bully. He's this a is bully, and he's not an upstate New Yorker. He's born and raised in New York City. That's yeah, different state. No, but not really. He's Oyster Bay guy. Oyster Bay is Long Island. That's yes, not yeah. New York City. Ask him. It ain't upstate. <laughs> it ain't no New York City. Ask Island them. Is Long upstate. Island is fucking yaw. Right? But it ain't, yeah. Yeah. Roosevelt, another peculiar, peculiar Churchill. Oh, yeah. fuck. Very, 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 yeah. alike, very similar. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, Jeffrey, what do you read? Well, I'm reading the same thing Timmy is, but it's a hardcover edition and it's back at my house. And here I am in California. So I'm reading. I have a small paperback of uh, Tucker's book, uh, Ship of Fools. And uh, so I, he, it's very interesting. And he, he's got a couple of uh, got a chapter that really goes into the, you know, his opinion of Max Boot and another later chapter that goes in his opinion of, uh, uh, of uh, Crystal. Um, Bill Crystal. You know, yeah, Bill Crystal. And uh, he does a great job of, dismantling their their reputations at least in my view you know the um i went up to sacramento to a high school reunion and then i listened i listened to a book called 
The Obstacle is the Way by a guy named Ryan Holiday. You heard anything? He's uh, he's he's written another book called The Daily Stoic. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. oh. yeah, yeah. I, I knew I knew that name. Yeah, I, I would tell you this. Um, he actually. So I'm driving down I five, which I've done a million times in my life because I, I I'm from Sacramento, right? Lived in Southern California for a long time. Um, he uses. So I'm driving down. I'm, I'm kind of like south of Stockton, headed south. And I'm just, it's nothing but the straightest drive you've ever seen in your life. Okay. And I'm listening, and he, I thought he's used the word unfuck, which is not, a, it's, a, it's a peculiar word, right? It exists in the Marine Corps, right? And you normally hear it when somebody looks at you and says, unfuck yourself. And you're like, right. what, what does that mean? <laughs> oh, I know. Hence you never and you never do it. <laughs> I, I know. And so I'm I'm driving and I'm like, did he just say un and I'm like so I now I hit the button on audible thing back 30 seconds. And he uses the word unfuck in his in his audiobook. And I thought, hmm. I am the target market for this book. And uh he is no, it, and it, what it talks about is the obstacles in your life and the and, and the conquering of those obstacles. Is truly the path that that you need to get on to live on a, live a great life, and so it was recommended to me by a bunch of people, and I'm about two thirds of the way through it. And I would, I would tell you absolutely positively, listen to this book. I'll do. I'll I'll listen to the Daily Stoic after I listen to that. But I became a Ryan Holiday fan, and uh, listening to this book, it's uh, yeah. You don't listen to the Daily Stoic. You read one page a day. Is that how you do it? That's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's got. An ancient quote, and it's got a paragraph of thoughts about the quote. Right. Yeah, it's a day. It's a day, a, a page a day kind of a book. So it's going to take so, me a year to to get through the book. Yeah, because if you read the whole book in in a sitting or in five sitting, it's worthless. The idea is you're supposed to read this and think about it for a day before you move on to a new idea. And something like that <laughs> appealed to you. I got it sitting next to my chair where I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, read the news, read a page out of the Daily Stoic, and then go down to the gym and hit it. And I ruminate about what the Daily Stoic had to say for the day. Really? And that, that's, so that, that's what it's like being retired. That, and that appeals to you. <laughs> yes. Look, you can only take people's money at the poker table and shoot shotguns all so much during the day. You got to yeah. fill your time up. At some point, right. you have to have some intellectual activity. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, I don't get it on Thursdays. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. On that note, uh, we will end. We will end this shit. So, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Jeff, when's the next? Thank when you, you go, when are you going to Vegas? When do you go back to the palatial uh, uh, tomorrow, Kenny, Kenny Estate? For, tomorrow I'm going. I'm flying for the first time, so I'm barely. I'm, I'm not even taking a fucking toothbrush. You're flying for I'm the first. Fly. What do you mean you're flying yeah. for? Oh, between flying Southern California, to Vegas. Vegas. For the first time, I've yeah. been driving. That's smart. Like That's smart. Forty-five minute. My wife's been flying back and forth, but I'm gonna. Uh, I'm flying myself uh, tomorrow, and I'll. Uh, I'll be back here. I'm taking another couple of days off in Vegas. So I'll, next time we do this, I'll be in Vegas. So cost-benefit analysis of flying, where do you fly out of? Orange County? Orange County, John Wayne. And uh, it, 
it, uh, it's like $45. I get one of the boy, one of the uh, twins who lives, actually, I'm bunking with them right now, drive me up there tomorrow morning, 07 flight. $45 one way on what airlines? Spirit. Spirit. Do you get to fly in the fuselage? Are you in the cargo hold? Where the fuck do you? Well, Lori says, Lori doesn't bother to even try and reserve a seat. It's because who cares? It's only 45 minutes, you know? So uh, you get, I'll probably be in a middle seat somewhere in a, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not a puddle jumper. I guess like a 727 or whatever, you know. And but, it's uh, a direct flight to Vegas? Yeah, yeah. Where else could it go? Yeah. Oh, no, trust me. For 45 bucks, they would send you to Dallas. They would send you right to the airstrip adjacent to the cemetery that you described. And then it would be a 13-hour <laughs> flight. It would be a 13-hour flight, ultimately. They'd say to Delaram, Exactly. You'd go to Delaram, and, and then you'd go to Vegas. And that's why it's 45 fucking bucks. So, anyway. All right, boys. Thank you very much. Yep, see ya. Hey, wait a minute. Will, Will, what are you doing in New York? Uh, 40th High School Reunion. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Hey, I just went um, and hung out with my high school class, and we get together every summer now. And I'll tell you what, man. It's hilarious because I went to kindergarten with some of those kids. Yeah, I started in this school in second grade. Yeah. And... You see them, and now, you know, people are dying, you know, spouses are dying and all the things that happen in life, right? And and yet you're still, you know, you still know them, you still hang out with them. And uh, and I had an absolutely awesome time. I would ne- I, I'd never, if I can, I was supposed to be up in Montana, but things happened. I didn't go, and uh, I got a chance to drive up there. Didn't hesitate for a second. Spent the whole day there, got there at noon, left at 7 o'clock at night. Sat in a friend's backyard, and, you know, talking, you know, about you know about life, about you know, just all kinds of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I love that stuff. So, anyway, all right, see you guys later. All right, see you, see you Mac. Those, if you stuck around, <laughs> if you stuck around that long, that is a wide-ranging discussion from the Mensa brothers. So uh, I hope in some way, shape, or form that uh, if you stuck around, that that you enjoyed that. Obviously, if you stuck around, you must. Thanks for listening on this Thursday. Uh, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio right here on the All Warrior Radio Network. Um, Have a great... Thursday. And uh, if I can help you help somebody, don't be afraid to uh, to reach out and uh, let me know. I'd be happy to. Uh, all that contact information will ultimately wind up in my pocket. So just go ahead and reach out. Um, on that note, this program repeats itself momentarily. So don't touch your dial. Have a great Thursday. And uh, we'll see you Monday. Uh, on Monday, you're going to hear from Jeff Zazulowitz. He's a writer for Navy Time, probably the most, uh, I don't know, he is the writer, in my opinion, for Navy Time. So you're gonna, we're going to talk Navy stuff. Uh, you'll hear from him, mostly explaining because he's a pretty professional reporter. So if you ask him for opinions, not so much. 
so he kind of stays in his lane. So excited to do that. You also hear next week a friend of mine by the name of Dave Whitesock. And uh, Dave, um, Dave has had, he's the son of an Air Force um, Sergeant Major. And he um, struggled with alcohol, wound up in jail, gets out of jail, becomes a lawyer, uh, a addiction person. So we're going to talk about that. That all We'll talk about all of that. And he's a great guy. So that'll be Tuesday. So interesting stuff going on next week. Anyway, have a great day tomorrow. Have a great weekend. And we'll be back here on Monday. So on this Thursday, I'm out.